1: This is Pretty Much Pop, a culture podcast today Joined by a very special guest, Margaret Colin, Who you probably saw in Veep, Gossip Girl, Independence Day, The Devil's Own All the way back to Pretty in Pink We're going to be talking about the trope of the alpha female in film and TV Those tough-as-nails boss types that may or may not have a heart of gold This is Mark Linton-Meyer, incidentally, also quite Pretty in Pink
2: this is Erica Spires wearing my power suit.
3: And I'm Brian Hurt. And when I recently rewatched the movie Working Girl for the millionth time, let's just assume it was in preparation for this podcast.
4: <laughs> Welcome, Margaret. Hi, how are you? Hello, Erica. It's good to hear your voice.
2: You too. <laughs> so you two
1: were in a show together. That's how we have made this connection.
2: Yeah, we did Carousel together. She was Mrs. Mullen.
4: I owned the carousel. So that was fun. It's the only non-singing, non-dancing part outside of the, outside of the heavenly collar. So uh, Erica did all the heavy lifting, the scenes, dancing and everything. I did the, I did the slapping leading men and yelling at people. So.
2: And she did have a sort of a power suit for the time period, although that was a very uncomfortably tight skirt, I'm sure.
4: I was a stunning outfit. I love Ann Ross. I think she's genius. She's dressed me a lot of times and she loves dressing my body no matter what age it is. And she, and it was just gorgeous. And the hat, she gave me this, oh, yes, I'm yeah. sure it's a It was the most, it was not a girl's costume. It wasn't a, a youngster's costume. It was, you know, and it had furs all over the place. I had a bird on my head and then she just dressed <laughs> it wonderfully. So you would see that she was holding it together as much as she could. But yeah, she didn't look like anybody else. That's for sure.
2: Yeah.
1: Erica, do you want to start us on what this topic was, what your thoughts were coming into this?
2: So I got to meet Margaret last year and get to know her a bit. And one thing I'm fascinated with are people who have somehow managed within their careers to not only have a sustainably long career and varied career, but one where they tend to play people who are strong, strong women. And Margaret has been able to do that throughout a lot of her career. And it got me thinking about, you know, things are quite changing today. And I think it's really interesting to learn more about how you accomplish that. If you feel like you accomplished that, was it something you intended to do? Or was it something you fell into? And just further discuss this. It's a bit of a TV and movie trope, right? This strong female character. And so we need to kind of, I guess, define what that character is. Because there are a lot of different examples of what really makes a strong female character.
4: Oh, absolutely. And the definition used to make me laugh. You know, she's attractive, but not threatening. She's uh, well-educated, but unassuming. She's a uh, fights for what she believes in, but she doesn't estrange anyone. You're like, I, you know, she's kind of white, except when she's not white. And it was inevitably had a, a woman writer or certainly a lot of the TV I did. It was when I played the detective or the assistant district attorney or the reporter. It was very often from her point of view and not defined by their relationship to the husband or the boyfriend or not in search of the husband or the boyfriend. You know, that was part of the agenda of trying to find a mate if it were a running a long series or at least go on worthwhile dates. But the work was also <laughs> the work that they were doing worthwhile and a passion for them. So I think that's a big part of it, of defining that kind of person. And of course, as you know, it's got to be in the writing. You've got to have right. writers who want to tell the story. About a woman who isn't just defined by looking for a fella, um, a significant other, a gal. Then it's one kind of a story. So while well, I did play women who were girlfriends to the stars, I used to call that in my you know Tom Selleck phase. But the, the, she was also like a concert violinist in Three Men and a Baby. So they were like he pulled her in to do something while she was doing her passion. apart. you know, like he had a job that he was passionate about. She had a job she was passionate about. I just think I auditioned really well for those. I mean, I'm tall and I have sort of a deep voice. So I think what I was gravitated towards was and what people saw me cast as was. And if the material had a fight in it, I was probably going to find out the most interesting part of the material that she's standing up for herself, that she's fighting for what she wants.
2: Did they tend to want to cast you with taller men as well? Or did you ever find that that was a problem because there tend to be a lot of shorter men in Hollywood?
4: Not really a problem, and also, you just really learn to have fun and adjust to it. You learn phrases like, you know, a cowboy, or you just you stand with your legs really wide apart to lower your <laughs> center of gravity, so you're in the same freaking shot. You take your shoes off. You teach short, like, I mean, Wally Shawn played my husband on Gossip uh, Girl, and they thought that was the funniest thing in the world, that his head came up to between my breaths. Oh, my God, we're in comedy now. <laughs> so I think you just have to... You know, you have to go with, and of course, Tom is wonderfully tall and, and it wasn't a problem in Carousel. You know, I actually had a couple of inches on our, like an inch on Josh, or we were maybe both exactly the same size and I, and they put me in heels and, and that was fun. But I just, when I just think for this particular project, it could usually be adjusted with the height of the heel. I did uh, Salome with uh, Al Pacino and he's not known for being statuesque, but we were sitting down most of the time. So, right. <laughs> I don't recall if that was a problem, and if it were, they probably weeded me out before the project got, the casting process got too far.
2: Now, Margaret, you're 5'10 or 5'11, I can't remember. 5'10. So you're tall, but you're not Amazonian.
3: Well, Allison Janney talked about, someone told her she'd only ever be cast as aliens and lesbians. I'm not sure how tall she is. Clearly, she managed to to work past that, and, and they had quite a bit of fun with it on the West Wing at her height.
4: Right. Absolutely. You have a lot of fun with it. Why not? In a world that we're not really too terribly worried about offending each other and we can write characters and treat them with dignity, you can have fun over people's individual characteristics. That's where creativity lies. If you're really, for me, if you're worried about being too politically correct, then it's kind of the death of art, kind of the death of telling a unique story. And Allison, is, I've known her since she was on The Guiding Light opposite my husband, Justin Dees, and she played recurring role of the maid. And she was hysterical. Again, if you worry like if you're taller than the guy, then we're right back into then the story isn't being told from the perspective of the woman. Because you don't have to worry if you're taller than the guy if you're if the story is told from the perspective of the woman.
1: Right. Well, it's so great on Veep since that already had as its central point – the sort of boss woman, one of these playing with that trope, that by the time they got to your character, you know, it's yet a different funny variation on, that's not treating the characters with dignity, that's treating the actors with dignity, but the characters can all be universally vile.
4: They are universally vile. You know, it is a political satire. (laughs) That's what they did over there. I was shocked at the words that they wrote for me to say, but I think the whole, if it's too vulgar or the language is offensive, then it's really not for you. but if you like pushing that outrageousness to the level that we did, I mean she was the reverse of hashtag me too. she was doing it to the men she was firing all the pretty girls because they were young and pretty and she was blatantly indicating and putting in the press that she was having sex with all the good looking men so and it was (laughs) to her advantage which i happen to think is really funny (laughs) they would then when you were working on veep they just yell across the room the next line you're supposed to say which is we have to go to confession i have to go to confession if i say that that's amazing like oh, we all do because we're hearing it it was it's one of a kind and it's certainly shows the, the desperate the actors are treated with dignity the writing of the of the place. I mean they're not dignified characters, but it's to reflect on the condition we're in, the situation we find ourselves when we turn on television and how people have gotten away with this kind of selfishness, this kind of selfishness and power hungry to advance their careers to be in history. And I, I think we have plenty of examples of that.
2: Margaret, one of the things I was wondering about is have you found that times As you, the actor, have felt empowered, has that coincided with times your character has felt empowered or has it, I suppose in this case with Veep, it's a kind of a different situation because like you're saying, like you guys are treated with dignity, but the characters are, you know, well, it's comedy, so it's, it's okay for her to be.
4: The characters are outrageous, extremes of the type going after what they want.
2: Have you felt like the time that maybe you felt the most empowered in the character? Has that also been when you felt most empowered as the actor or no?
4: Um, Again, if it's on the page and you're, I've done a a bunch of Lifetime movies and a couple of them, I was, well, with Richard Kiley and even Marie Saint, and I was one of a large family. I was a young-ish mom with, dad was staying with us and dad's coming down with Alzheimer's. So because it was Lifetime and they tend to have a, a highly female hormone count over there and they were dealing with it sensitive subject of dad having Alzheimer's and him wanting, you know, it was called the time to say goodbye. So this wasn't a woman that was walking around solving problems in a legal office or fighting for justice in a police uniform. She was trying to protect her home and her young children from a father that was becoming disoriented and violent with his Alzheimer's. It's based on a true story, the character made the choice to when it gets to a certain point, he wants to end his life. So he hadn't gotten to that point by the time Sidebar, we shot the movie because I got to meet him and he was dignified and dressed up. But the, that journey was an emotional one. That was a and negotiating all the relationships between this large family and in a short amount of time. That was a director that I had worked with. That was the first time I worked with him. And I remember when I came on the set, like, and I re-rehearsed the scene of me becoming very upset that this was happening and I was throwing pots and pans around and I was, you know, impassionately saying my lines like, no, this is like fully passionate. And he goes, okay, well, machine gun colon, that's great. Let's see if we can take it down because it didn't fit in his idea of uh, this domestic situation. Like, why would you get that upset? So I frequently have worked with male directors where I told them I got that upset because I thought that was appropriate. And that's what I wanted, how I wanted to play it. And he says, well, let's, that's a good choice. Let's go with another choice. Let's go with something that's a little calmer and let's contain that fury. Let's have it in this shot. Let's have it in that shot. Let's not have it like machine gun colon all over the set. And um, I'm not the director. So the, that part was a, obviously a featured role in the piece I think you also like directly to answer your question. You have more influence over how you're playing the part when you just take it. You just take it, and you mm. you have to be. I had to learn that this is the job to interpret the character, and then if and then if you want to play it differently than the director really wants to play it, and then there's no wiggle room. Well, you've got your options. You got your options, but there have also been times where I like the director's idea much better, and it fit. With, he's looking at the whole film, not just looking at. My role, and you yes. can't you can't underestimate that. So I think in like in Foley Square, I remember being worn down by the. It was like one of Diane English's early TV shows that she worked with to establish producers and I remember actually having the conversation like how they wanted me to play it and I was like I don't think so funny I want to do it this way and the answer was we'll stay here all night till you was a live it was three camera film because we'll just stay here all night till we get it the way we want it
2: like you're gonna do it regardless
4: yeah you're gonna do it regardless because Keisha hadn't noticed where the boss is
2: Sorry, this was on the Lifetime
1: Network, this particular experience? No, no, that was
4: a CBS show called Fully Square that I did a long time ago, one of Diane English's early sitcoms before Murphy Brown. And she was not, while she was an executive producer, she deferred to two, she had to, the two showrunners were assigned by CBS, which is not unusual. So, because it was one of her first shows. So yes, I, I completely remember being told that the way that you want to do it, Margaret, is not the way that we want to do it. So you can wear yourself out, but we're going to do it my way. So yeah, and I think that was because that was a aggressive but not intimidating, knows her mind but isn't a stringent kind of double standard that they had of defining people in sitcoms then.
2: For sure. I Actually, as we love to do here on our podcast, I'm going to quote some Wikipedia. <laughs> the strong female character is a term for a class of stock character. It is the opposite of the damsel in distress stock character. Now, it also says, whether female characters are strong enough is often used as a gauge of story quality by critics in similar manner to whether the story passes the Bechtel test. However, some have criticized this metric for causing authors to avoid creating female characters with realistic weaknesses. And I think that's kind of what this also gets at, right? Is that there are different forms of feminism, and now we're like starting to see like some people say, like no, 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 to be a strong female character, you don't have to wear a power suit, and you don't have to have masculine characteristics. We can look feminine and be feminine and still show those different sides and still be a strong character. That's one thing to consider. And another form of that is seeing these outbursts and things that I think are a feminine thing that we're comfortable with doing when we need to get out our feelings, we got out those feelings. And it sounds like they didn't want to see that. They wanted to see you
4: take it more like,
2: I will take it in. I'm a woman."
4: I can't remember the exact scene we were we were doing, but like even when I was Jackie on Broadway and Jackie, if I played her at the end, like now go away, go leave me alone Mm -hmm. and scared the audience like really fiercely. Like you could see through at the end of the show, you could see through the 1950s sort of demeanor of the soft voice and the yeah. the head slightly down, which, you know, she was genius at, and she's quite accomplished. She's one of my heroes. But if I, like, lasered out at them, like, leave me alone, the producers came running back and go, you can't do that. You're scaring the audience. We want them to be happy that you came. I think it's kind of a dramatic great choice to see this steeliness inside of her. Like, no, I want my life. I want, it's my life. I paid my dues. And they came running back. They were, you know, upstairs, three, you know, two flights into the dressing room going, you cannot play the last scene like that. It's too alienating. The audience, are going to feel like idiots for coming here. If you give them that steely nugget, I didn't change the lines. You know, I didn't, I'm not an idiot. I didn't break the rules. I just played it that way. And they went, no. They didn't want the audience to feel as though they had. We're not welcome. I said, well, that's what you kind of wrote. She wants a privacy. This is the right. price this woman paid to have privacy. But, you know, that was in terms. So I think with a character like that, it's a classic. The, the image of Jackie, the woman behind the scenes, what was her strengths? What is considered? Would she ever do that? Where did she stand up for herself in a way that that wasn't in the spotlight? What can we guess about her? So, you know, the movies before the code, the old movies in Hollywood before the code, those women, I mean, I was watching a bunch of them on TNC, were completely fleshed out. They were using all their wiles to get what they wanted. You know, they all have to be skinny within an inch of their lives. But they, mm-hmm. you know, they were <laughs> they were stood up by men. They smacked men around. They ran their businesses. They were crooks. They were stay-at-home moms. They they were all of those things. And they were certainly allowed to have a full range. So that, then I think we got into the code. And then the movies that I fell in love with acting with was probably, you know, the greats. Katherine Hepburn, Betty Davis, Audrey Hepburn, on the 430 movie, which was a staple of my life. So you would come home, and, and you didn't have to pick whether it was a guy flick or a chick flick then. If these were the movies people were making, they were great. I don't know what happened. I think maybe Marvel Comics happened. I don't know what happened.
1: <laughs> so you're not going to turn up in the next Marvel movie? Is that what you're saying?
4: Yeah, you put me in it, baby. I'm ready to play. Let's go. <laughs> I don't know what happened. I don't know why you had to pick. We, we try not to choose whether it's a chick flick here in the house. We just go, well, is, are we blowing anything up? Or is there, are there, is there a character story? You know, that would be nice. Is it more right. of a travelogue? That's how we kind, of, we kind of tend to look at it. But, uh, you know, I think the reverse can be also true of like bridesmaids goes way out there with behavior. And there's kind of a gross factor in some of the brilliant stuff that Tina Fey does. But they go so far to like, oh, guys can tell this joke too. But guys and gals can tell jokes like this in a historical sense carry on but in terms of did I think that was particularly funny without giving a specific example not necessarily I'm not a big fan of gross act humor it has to be done really well
1: With all that stuff you did with the Lifetime Network did you feel that it seemed from what you said before that this was kind of since it was female centric in terms of the creative team that it would give even though there are lower budgets and things but more chance to have fleshed out characters who, you know, their existence wasn't necessarily referring to men. I couldn't see bridesmaids being made on the Lifetime network, for instance.
4: Well, all of the ones I did for Lifetime were over 10 years ago. That's the difference. I flipped on the channel now and watched stuff and i was sitting there going this is lifetime holy smoke so yes there was a soft coating quality to it but the stories that i got to tell i was the lead in the other two ones and in one i call it the land of no cell phones it was a hit and run and i was driving in my van and i was reaching for a cigarette and in the glove compartment and i'm a mom and i'm married And this driving in the van, reaching for a cigarette in the car in the eyes of the director was the sign that I was an evil person, that only people with low character qualities smoke in their car and sneak cigarettes when they're moms and tell everybody that they don't smoke. I went, oh, "Oh." I didn't research that much. But while I was doing that, this child came out of nowhere and ran into the street and I hit her. So I got out of the car and I attend to her, but I have, we're on a country road and there are no cell phones. Conveniently, there's nobody around. So why, I was not drawn to the piece because of this. I was drawn to the piece because it's the conflict of she went to get help. She went to a pay phone and called it in. And when she came back, the place was filled with other people and bystanders. And everybody was saying it's a hit and run. It's a hit and run. They ran away. And she chickened out. Mm. of owning that, no, I hit this child and then I went to call it in. And then the whole story is how we figured that out. And she, you know, her coming to grips with her own conscience. And I found it really great to play. But even in the career, the making of that, the like ideas of what a good mom was or what the writers intended had to be fleshed out with me and the director and the producers. And I enjoyed very much working there because I had a voice to help flesh it out in the acting of it.
3: It seems like there's a real tension between... You know, Erica was talking about stock characters. You know, these things where you sort of have to use shorthand when you're telling a story in the span of two hours. We don't have time to go into backstory the way you do in a novel. But at the same time, Margaret, you've used the term fleshing out a few times because that's really what you need to do. You're giving the illusion of being fully fleshed out, right? How could you possibly be in two hours? Like, we can't get to know anybody really. So that's your job as an actor is to work with what you have, what you're given. And sometimes it's genius and sometimes it's reaching for a cigarette, but you do it anyway. And I guess that really is where the talent comes in because you do walk away as a viewer. You know, I think I know more about the characters than I was actually told because you're giving me enough that I'm filling in. The gaps to, and so I, maybe I'm, I don't know the acting process the way that you and Erica do, but it strikes me that there's a lot going on that we viewers aren't even aware of that you are doing that the writer didn't necessarily do or the director didn't necessarily do, but you are doing so successfully.
4: I think that it's very frequently not apparent to the audience, but the whole character of they're seeing a person, not somebody who is only alive when the camera hits them, that mm. they've thought about, you know where am I going, where am I coming from, what do I want? How did the character sleep today? I mean, how many times has she had this fight? Does anybody listen to her? And then a lot of times that's the joy that can happen on the set. Somebody like Alan Pakula will come over and say to you, I didn't see the movie being played like this, and the devil's on the scene being played like this, but I can't give you anything else to do. Just let's do it again. That was great. And you're like, oh, well, if Alan Pakula thinks it's great, and Harrison Ford feels confident. I must be on track here because that woman was definitely, in the movie to help tell the story of the two leading men. It was, by definition, a supporting role. You helped show what their home life was like and having it violated by Irish intruders and having her life threatened, any man in the audience, any woman in the audience, any child in the audience would say, well, no, that's scary to have your home threatened. So my job was to create a real character at home, fully invested in her husband and her children. And since I happened to be those things, you can just get richer and richer and richer with every everything you play. And you're not looking for like, oh, how do I fill this up? How do I cross the room? What do I, what do I want today? I have to move over here for the lighting and camera and, and uh, to, get, to make this two-shot clear. Okay, well, I can come up with 95 million reasons to do it. And all the audience knows is that it's kind of natural, believable. And that's when you're lucky because, you know, other times they just stick you in another position and you're like, I cannot motivate this at all. So I think I'll laugh. <laughs> <laughs>
1: Are you one of the actors that avoids or watches repeatedly or somewhere in between, you know, the finished product of your work, like these Lifetime movies and the other things?
4: Well, I haven't seen the Lifetime movie in a million years because, like I said, it was a long time ago, maybe 15, 20 years ago. Um, you know, you couldn't get away from Independence Day. It's on quite a lot. So I used <laughs> to come in the room when my kids would have people over and through, I was like, are you watching porn? What are you watching? What are you watching? And then and they'd yell out, mom, it's porn. It's porn. I went, you can't make your friends watch Independence Day again. You can't do that. So <laughs> they would just laugh even at a young age, you know, no mom, it's porn. Like everybody else you're going to interview that's been at it for a long time. You kind of, when you see something, when something you do pops up or somebody posts a picture of you from your youth, you go into time travel. It's more that oh my goodness, I the flood of memories about this project or that project. No, I do not go back and watch.
1: More was just actually in the context of, you know, we were talking about your how much you're putting into your characters, and I'll admit, so I just, between yesterday and today, watched on YouTube the third Lifetime movie that we have not talked about, where your husband fakes his own death, and and you find it out using the primitive internet technology of the time, and everyone's amazed that you could do that kind of research. What's... You know, of course, distracting about about that is is the music. And so I would think that it seemed like you were putting more into that character. And I think really all the actors did really quite a good job in that, but that it was a little bit undermined by this very heavy handed lifetime gloss music.
4: I can't speak to that. You know, I'm not the producer of it. So that, that, you know, that can happen on stage. You can take a reaction that you can have in a, a sitcom, a nighttime TV show, and they can take that reaction and put it someplace else in the scenario where that wasn't, they can edit in your reaction where you did not react that way. They can just take your reactions and move them all over the place, which really kind of makes you want to retire to, you know, garden architecture. It doesn't make you want (laughs) to do it for a living because you want to be, you want to have control over your performance. And that's again, as you know, Eric and I know with stage work, they're not going to edit your reaction. You're telling the story to the audience right there. There's no, third party putting cheesy music underneath it or although sometimes they you know drench you with water you know they decide oh this will be well this will be a good thing to have and they just make the stage rain so like oh good i'm so glad i'm acting up a storm here so you can literally put me in a storm thank you very much so yeah it's, uh, it's an odd thing to do for a living
2: i watched slave play yesterday have you seen that one margaret no i haven't it is excellent but it was hard to watch and hard to sit through. And all I could think the whole time is if I were one of these actors, I can definitely see doing that play for a few weeks. I can't imagine doing it day after day, eight times a week for months. There's just a lot of, ooh, living in a very dark world. I mean, there's some humor in it, but ultimately it's about race, but it's also, there's a lot of sexual violence and doing that eight times a week would be, I think, really difficult. Whereas I suppose if you're doing it for a film, you can kind of, Get it out there in a few days, you know whatever your shoot dates are, and it's done.
4: Exactly, but if you have to live in the mind of the character, I remember doing a scene with uh, Michael Shannon in his first movie, and I thought Michael Shannon had absolutely no sense of humor because every time you know we were cut, he was like mumbling and walking away, and. Then we were promoting the film. And he was laughing and joking. I said, where did this guy come from? And he, and, he, and he goes, oh, it was my first movie. I was afraid not to be in character. It's like, oh, oh. good. I'm glad you're not the scariest man I ever met in my life. Excellent. <laughs> <laughs> and Michael Shannon is adorable. He's really funny. He's also really good at acting like a hitman, you know, like yeah. uh, a lost person, like someone capable of violence with uh, very little moral compass, you know, or his own moral compass anyway. So, right. But you can, you know, I mean, if they had cheesed up um, that movie with corny music, it was a film noir movie to begin with. But if they'd cheesed it up with music that made the audience laugh, it would have been a, a whole nother scenario. Can't control that. Do you think
2: that you find more empowerment and opportunity as you age? Because I think it can be much more difficult in this industry. Getting older as a woman and losing opportunities on certain roles, but on the other hand, the roles that you kind of get to play are probably stronger than the ones that you played in your twenties and thirties. How do you find that to be in this?
4: I am kind of a the glasses half full kind of a gal. I'm you know really grateful for the long career I've had since I was nineteen. I have had like lots of those periods where I thought I'd never work again. And then, of course, pregnancy and children and being blessed with a family and being married, blessed with a a marriage. These are uh, things that take work and effort and love and time and can take you out of your career or keep you at a, uh, you know, you're not as, this is the one back from the baby. So your salary dropped. This is the show, the movie you did after your second kid. So you're back You just lost all your quotes. The salary situation in TV is, you know, I don't know anyone who isn't on a contract role in uh, television that hasn't been saying the same thing. So the conversations where we used to have, you could get a great part and make a lot of money, that seems to be fewer and fewer. And that certainly is, if you put the television on, most of the people that are on nighttime TV, most of them are not in their 50s and 60s. The stories that we're following are people in their 20s and 30s and really gorgeous, Forties. I'm going into a play with uh, written by uh, Richard Greenberg at the Manhattan Theater Club called The uh, Perplex. Lynn Meadow's going to direct it, and it's a very complicated woman, and it's a wedding for a Jewish family. Can the extended family hold it together? So it's multi generational, and it's and I'm a politician, and I'm the matriarch of the group, and my uh, husband's there, my kids are there, and my estranged father is there. So there's this is. a really juicy part and part of it's written in prose part of it's written in verse it's going to take a lot of useful stamina that i'll come over and borrow from you um and concentration (laughs) which i will come over and borrow from you as well so you know it's very nice to be on the set and go in a a rehearsal hall and have people recognize the body of work that you've done but you've also got to really stay on your game and you have to decide that this may or may not be worth your effort or your time because you've got a lot to do. It's not like I need to pad the resume. So it, it has right. gone in and out during the seasons of my life, whether or not I I've thought I had more or less choices. And now we're entering in an age of enormous diversity, right. which is great for the people who have not been part of it. Does it feel like maybe film is the
1: most conservative and TV is the second most, but theater you get more opportunities in terms of roles appropriate to your age that don't feel like they're in a particular, you know, I just saw you your, your little, He's on The Good Wife as a kind of obnoxious lawyer defending somebody's very obnoxious uh, rich person's prenup, which you did a great job sort of being, you know, inhabiting that that little character. And that whole show and those showrunners, their stuff is, you know, filled with nice, beefy characters like that, you know, for men and women. But that does seem still the exception, right?
4: Over a a wide range of ages, Mm -hmm. absolutely. Absolutely. And ethnicities. I think that television, I mean, Dana Delady's talked about it. There's lots of, you know, Mary Tyler Moore made her career on it. There's lots of people who have spoken about that television has been a, a warmer place, a, a more receptive place for women. I think that's true. And then somebody will jump up and say, you know, Meryl Streep, Kathy Bates, it's been a couple of Jobs in between for Kathy Bates. She's on that TV show that I didn't watch, but I adore Kathy Bates. I think she's a brilliant actress and I can't wait to see the movie that she's out in, playing the mother of the guy who was accused wrongly of blowing something oh, up. Yeah. I don't, can't remember the name of it. And she is a brilliant actress and she's certainly no glamour plus except when they glamorize her up and they put her in a convertible and she starts telling the young girls off. Well, I mean, how much fun, how much, I can't remember the name of the, that movie, but how much fun was that? So I think there's exceptions to it, but I've always found, you know, since uh, Time Daily, I've always found nighttime TV to be very receptive to women in different roles and have the stories be driven by women. It's Hmm. not always the case. I think there's so much now. I don't know if that's still the case, but when I was coming up, there was more on TV. So I have been doing a lot more theater lately and that's where parts have been written and doors have been open that I can get access to. But I'm also kind of like going do I need to do it? And I really needed to do Carousel because I'd never been in a musical before. So that thrill of not so much what I got to do, but hearing an orchestra every night and watching the dancers and seeing understudies going on and the level of preparedness and the beauty of their voices. And oh my goodness, it was the biggest gift I could have given myself to be a part of that world apart from, I mean, my role was fun and I'm I'm really glad I did it, but it was joining the world of the musicals that was extraordinary and hearing that that orchestra eight times that was a first for me i don't know from that so that oh, was yeah. that was thrilling and and i don't i know i wouldn't have appreciated it as much as i did if i haven't been having the life that i've had it
3: you're not going to sing for us is that is that what's happening
4: um well uh, you go first
2: <laughs> that's, that's good margaret <laughs> that's
4: erica's job <laughs> <Sorry>. uh <laughs> I have been known to burst into song at parties, but, you know, not not at the moment. I I don't feel the urge. (laughs) Well, you mentioned uh, tone of voice, which you can control,
1: and timbre of voice, which you can't, that you can sort of do the huskier thing or the more feminine thing. Is that sort of feminine voice, is that a thing, you know, that you would get direction about quite a bit in terms of how, you know, Kathy Bates, you mentioned, is sort of known as... She's got this tough-as-nails, no-nonsense voice. Like, that is one of the things she can pull out, whereas, you know, Melanie Griffith doing the take-control boss, you know, that would be kind of playing against type or something. And those are kind of the extremes, and then you have a lot of people that can kind of play both sides. Have you thought a lot about that, or is that just, you know, that's the way your voice sounds, and they'll cast you where they cast you?
4: Oh, no, no. Of course you think about it. You think about as a person in front of the camera on stage, you think about absolutely everything, your instrument. I'm sure Erica is the same way. It's another tool you have to tell a story. The timbre and the tone and the the cadence of the voice when I had the privilege of making my Broadway debut as Jackie and Jackie American Life, there was so much recording on her. There was so much primary source material to go to. So that was a joy. And also to watch the effect it has on people when you you know, you don't have the ball busting voice on. You don't have the like uh, "Your Honor, I object" kind of thing, or or running down the street, cop, you know, do it this way. But I actually did a movie with Melanie called Something Wild, and I actually was teasing her about like, can you phonate? Do, 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 do <laughs> you even do you know the word? I mean, can, and she just like she goes, knock it off, Maggie, and then she, because that shit what she should you're know, like, you know, can I wear a dress the way that Melanie Griffith can no can and that one of her tools to tell her story to play the characters that she wants to play is to have that that voice and it's
2: like, uh it's like this, right like she basically is kind of almost a baby voice
4: it's breathy yeah, but yeah. it's not it's not quite there, but yeah, but she, you know she she did some stunning work in uh, earlier films. Yeah, but I teased her about it. Like I said, probably Lauren Bacall and Betty Davis and those people were more my idols growing up. So <laughs> I think I still have to get Katherine Hepburn's twang out of my voice when I'm nervous, at like a first read-through. I'll turn to some confidant and go, did I sound like Katherine Hepburn? Did I get my it? um, But it's, a, yeah, it's a two. I think it's true with anybody. If you even watch news captures, if you watch politicians being interviewed, if you had like a really good teacher and, school, you can hear them modulating their voice. You can hear them using their voice as a tool to get their message across.
3: Margaret, quick question. It has to do with Jackie Kennedy because she has one of the most bizarre accents that I've come across. And like when you see other actresses or actors doing her do you judge them at all? Do you like listen? How, how much? <laughs> it is totally baffling, and there are papers written about where that thing came from. And I'm so curious to about me how you think. Being kind of
4: judgmental, huh? <laughs> Let's think if there's any precedent for me judging anybody. <laughs> no, can't come wrong. <laughs> yes, of course I do.
3: Um, for example, um, have you been watching The Crown on Netflix? Is that a program that you've been watching? No, there is a, a South African actor who plays Jackie Kennedy, and I was listening. I'm like, I don't think that's right, and then sure enough, it really was that strange, oddball accent of hers. So.
4: I think it's um, being raised in that time, going to finishing school. It was also Massachusetts and Long Island. Bouvier, there was the immigrant French thing from that side of her family. It's a very particular accent. And fortunately, she's recorded, so you can find it. But I think for my money, it's more of the time. It's more of the time like Doris Day, Marilyn Monroe. I think it's more of the time.
1: While we're talking accents, I don't think I've actually heard you having to do a Long Island accent, even though that's, that's where you grew up, right? Is that something you could <laughs> yeah, regress to pretty is. easily? Has the a role that you got to totally, you know, feed that past experience?
4: When I grew up on Long Island, there wasn't a Long Island accent. There okay. was uh, like my nieces who grew up there. Suddenly, everything is a dentalized chase. Suddenly, we got we get, and, and they were going up at the end of the sentence. And, and everything was like, uh, how are you? And, um, <laughs> and, and 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 it was in their nose. And I was like, I don't know why you're speaking like that. My parents were born and bred in Brooklyn. Neither of my parents, and my father was a cop, um, among other things, had an accent. So I didn't really have one, but I absolutely have completely enjoyed. I mean, I, throwing in a Brooklyn accent or a dentalized tea in somebody I think is entitled. It's very fun. <laughs>
1: So back for just a second to the so-called feminine voice issue. I just didn't know if you'd gotten harassed by directors a lot about, no, no, that's like you were saying, uh, that's not feminine enough while you're doing that particular thing, or you know if that was a kind of common point of contention.
4: No, it wasn't often. But I remember one movie I did with Treat Williams, a CBS movie where I was a, I think I was a scientist. All I remember is among the chimp I kept holding, In the photos that I have of it is he's feeling me up. The, <laughs> so that was like oh, yeah, I hope this makes it on air um, but I had to be if you're running and you're being chased by the very guy you have to fall so I would have running gags about all of those things if you know if you watch a movie where a woman is being pursued you can count down to when she falls you yeah. she has to fall so I would you know being a smart ass I would count down to and when am I going to fall and the guy chasing me is he going to fall well no I said right because why can't he just outrun me and then I would take pleasure and accomplishment in out the film crew. They would lay down Dolly track and they go, all right, Margaret, just run. And I would run really fast. And the, guy, and the crew would look at me going, could you not run that fast? And I was like, well, that's good. Then, then I, of course I can. I, <laughs> I, I can do my job and accommodate the camera. But my ego had to be scratched and say, look how fast.
2: Oh, I love that. Just making your point a little bit.
4: <laughs> yeah. And, you know, the crew. I get along with crews usually very well. Uh, the stunt guy had to pick me up and throw me in the back of a trunk in this movie. I get kidnapped and tortured. So that's just what you do sometimes to scientists that you (laughs) are Mm -hmm. going out with. And I had an attack in my home. So the stunt guy in real life and previously, and so the stunt guy said, it's my job to get you in the car. So let's just go for it. We knew what the shots were. We petted the trunk. We worked with the camera operator. And then I went, all right, let's go for it. And I got away from him. I got away from the stunt guy. So that made me feel, again, that made Margaret feel really empowered. And then this gentleman said, well, you know, good on you. I told you to see if you can get away. And you did. I said, so now we better block it out. You know, we can block it out because I had been traumatized. I was really glad that I could stand up for myself. So I didn't get pushback from it was just the kind of the pleasure of defying the expectation. I will say yes to that.
2: I love that. I love that you're not afraid to.
4: Those two incidents, you have to protect yourself when you're doing intimate scenes and love scenes and scenes that that have scantily clad situations. You have to protect yourself. But I didn't do a lot of those movies. I mean, I wasn't the go-to for that. You know, see Melanie Griffith, see Diane Lane, see others who, who've done that. That really hasn't been where my career went, probably because it would have been too traumatic for my father to, to be alive and, and see me take my clothes off in the movies.
2: Oh, I feel you. I did one show where I had partial nudity and my parents were not invited because I just couldn't imagine them sitting there watching me. I knew it would bother them, so therefore it's going to bother me if I'm on stage.
4: Yeah, I'm getting very good. I wish I did it earlier of like, no, no, don't come. It's fine, don't come. And mm-hmm. now I just, you know, if somebody says, what are you up to? I, my husband always was a big advocate of, I enjoy working for strangers, and I, I kind of agree with him. I, enjoy, I love the support of my family and my friends. I love it. But it's very nice to know that I do this for a living and people come to see me and I don't know all of them.
2: I completely agree. I didn't realize I felt like that until I went on tour. And of course, when you're touring, you see a ton of people that you've never met before and you'll never see again. And there's something very nice about just learning how to make what you do your job. And it's completely divorced from the fact that people come to see you and tell you how great you are and they're your family. You know, I think that's when you realize like, whether or not you actually enjoy the work is when you don't have people there to cheer you on every day.
3: I feel that way about this podcast, Erica. I don't know how Mark <laughs> plays it for his family. I, I wouldn't want my family hearing me say the things I say on the show.
4: It's not a bad grade school and doing it for your parents. Yeah, it's not like oh look at them. It's not. It's not that. Uh, it's not for a long time, but. Um, the support and the and the listening to the madness that we we bore people with about the minutiae of a gesture or Eric and I could probably talk forever about theater and acting and film and other people are like there is a re- another world out there.
0: Right.
4: <laughs> I think the stereotypes of women, the broad character strokes of women, aren't as nuanced as they could be, and I think it's also true with the broad stereotypes for men and the broad character types for men. So the performances we love is when the tough guy hits the high note and everybody melts because it tells us that the tough guy has a sweetness in him. But that was the whole project. Everybody wanted the tough guy to have that sweet moment. That's why they put it in the script. That's why the actor or the actor asked for it and they eventually put it in the script. That's why the musical arrangers wrote that note for him. That's why the lighting designer softens the light. So when the understanding Southern mom stomps into the room and says, you know, with all the, the decorum that we've seen her with in the rest of the film, but we know that she's got an inch of gray roots because she hasn't slept because her daughter needs her meds. And she just goes around yelling, you know, it's it's time for my daughter's meds, it's time for her, her medicine, she has to have her medicine. And she's not, as I said, like machine gun colon, but she's saying it as a character defining the expectations of the character and the audience as eyes. And that has to be written to. So, those are, you know, Shirley McLean in uh, terms of endearment. Her journey all through it is the stere- is going from the stereotype to a less judgmental, more fleshed out woman who can have it her way. So I think that's my on point answer to your ah. to the subject today.
2: I love that. That's fantastic. Thank you so much.
4: Yeah, that's a great way to
1: wrap up. Thank you so much for talking with us.
4: This is fun. I'm so glad I didn't have to have more technology on my iPad. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you.
2: Thank you so much, Margaret. Let me know when your Manhattan Theater Club uh, show opens. I'd love to come see that. Thank you.
1: Get more Pretty Much Pop at prettymuchpop.com. Get bonus content for every episode at patreon.com slash prettymuchpop. Pretty Much Pop is part of the Partially Examined Life Podcast Network, and it's also presented by openculture.com.